You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for uh, June 1st, 2023. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? never stop learning, never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse. Exciting, knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. Welcome back, Mary. We get together with Mary. Almost once a month, and we chit-chat about all things horse training, and I quiz her, and the listeners quiz her. If you want to quiz Mary about horse training questions, you need to be an auditor, because whenever Mary does her show, she posts that in the auditor's page. And if you're not an auditor, you should be. Auditors help support the Horse Radio Network hosts for as little as $3 a month, and they get to be in the super secret, not really, Facebook page and chat with other members of the community. Do that by going to horsesinthemorning.com and look for the auditor's banner. It's usually on the right-hand side of the page, but it moves periodically. Welcome back, Mary. Thanks for having me. It's uh, turning out to be a gorgeous spring in Texas. Now, in the particular part of Texas you are in, are you enjoying the spring thaw causing flooding from the massive amounts of snow? Uh, no, we didn't. I don't think we had any snow over the winter, uh, which is good because we got, we got pummeled there for a little bit a couple of years ago. Um, but no, it's been, uh, it's been really nice. Usually by now we are in full blown summer, hundred billion degrees out, no rain. Really? Uh, but it's, yeah, it's been gorgeous and we, there's still wildflowers everywhere. The blue bonnet season was gorgeous. Um, I've, the last couple of shows I've been to have been just wonderful. This is, I'm so thankful. It's been really, really nice, but the flies are going to be crazy because we've had a lot of rain. Flies and mosquitoes are going to be a little nuts this year, I think. Ah, yeah, that is. Well, coming up on today's show, we're going to tackle a variety of cantering and loping questions submitted by listeners, auditors. We are also going to contemplate the difficulties caused by a headstrong weanling who didn't have a really good initial haltering experience. And then we're going to take a look at how, actually we're going to do that first. We're going to take a look at how Mary training her overachieving young dog can relate back to horse training. And I've been having a great time following along with Echo and her efforts to become an agility dog. And first, we're going to start out with, tell everybody who Echo is. Uh, Echo is my two-year-old Belgian Malinois. I got her uh, kind of in the midst of COVID, uh, you know, because I think that's what everyone did is she went out and got a a dog. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Everybody got a baby, either a human one or a fur one. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it was very trendy, but, uh, yeah, I got her a couple years ago. She's my first Belgian Malinois. If you're not familiar with the breed, they kind of look like a German shepherd, like a real wiry, skinny German shepherd. Um, they are extremely smart and they are like a hundred percent all the time. And I love her and she's my best dog ever. So recently you started working with her on agility obstacles and one of the agility, the agility obstacles is weave poles. If you can imagine pole bending with horses, it's like that, except for a dog. Now, was that start at the beginning of that process? You, how do you introduce a dog to a weaving pole? So I am, uh, I, I started doing this with her because, uh, you know, I don't really have any current goals to do agility, like to compete. Uh, I, I'm very beginner. don't know much about how to train it. And so this has been a learning process for me too, but you know, with these dogs, because they are so high energy, um, you know, you've got to keep their they need mind a job. engaged. Yeah. <laughs> and just like training, you know, your more hot blooded horses, like your Arabians and some of your thoroughbreds and such, you know, you can tire them out and that might work a, a couple of times, but they have so much stamina and they're just going to get more fit and yep. you can tire. <laughs> yeah. You can tire a horse or dog out and they're still, they might be, yeah, physically a little tired, but they're still going to be, their mind's going to be going 400 million miles a minute. And so I do all, I've done all sorts of stuff with her, um, you know, just to keep her mind engaged. And it's a lot of fun, um, you know, like I'll hide things throughout the house and have her go find them. And we work on training, sit, stay down, stand, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I decided, well, why don't I start teaching her, um, you know, little obstacles and stuff. So I bought like a really cheap agility set on Amazon uh, that's got a little tunnel and a jump. And it's got poles that you stick in the ground and do the weaving with. And I had never taught that before, had no idea how to teach it. But luckily, there's a thing called YouTube. Um, <laughs> plus, <laughs> and I did have a few personal Facebook friends chime in who are experienced and gave me some advice. And because I have ADHD, I couldn't stick to one method. I did like four methods at the same time. And it worked out. <laughs> so it's become my own little method to teach, but it's really interesting. Um, one of my favorite ones is this uh, method called the two by two weaving method. And you start with just two poles and you put them you know, around 18 inches to two feet apart and just have those two poles and you have your dog go through them. So I use her favorite little, uh, it's a little tennis ball with a handle on it because she likes to play tug and she likes to go chase things. Um, so that was my motivation for her. And I lured her through with the ball and had her just to where she knew that I run through these two poles, I get the ball. And so you start that and you practice doing it from different angles. Uh, so you go like all around the poles and have her go through it at different angles. Because if you were going to do an agility competition, you could be coming at those poles from any angle coming from the last obstacle. So the dog has to know how to enter the poles correctly. So I did that. And then, uh, then you get another set of two poles together and you make it to where it's like a tunnel. So you have two poles in the ground and then a couple feet from that, you stick another two poles in the ground and they just go through a straight line. And, um, 
Hold on, oh, okay. So what you end up when what you end up with is is it was the goat the dog goes through them as if they were jump standards and there was no jump in the middle. Exactly. So okay. it's like it, yeah, it'd be like two sets of jump standards, like a combination, but there's no nothing in the middle. Um, I okay. I yeah, see where you, oh, okay. I just had a light bulb moment. I see where we're going with this. Right. Continue. It's so smart. I never would have thought about it. So you just have where they'll just go through two sets of poles, no problem. And then um then you take the second set and you stick it a little bit off to the side. So they still are going through the first set and then the second set you know, kind of one path to go through those, but one of them's slightly to the side and practice that over and over and over. And then you just keep angling it more to the side and closer to the first set, if that makes sense. And you keep doing it like you just move it a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And now eventually you end up with all four poles in a straight line. And um, you kind of have to see it on video to see how it works, but the dog ends up weaving through the poles. It's very natural. And, um, it's, it's like something I never would have thought of. And now I'm like, Ooh, I could teach my horse to do this. So I might be trying it with ding, Remy. ding, 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 ding. Can baby goat do this? I bet he would for the right amount of Cheetos, but um, for the right I'll amount of Cheetos. To- yeah. Yes, I probably have to put the poles three feet apart because he is a little plump. <laughs> oh, I have to say that goat is like a cat. He can fit through things I never would have thought. It's like he's made of liquid. <laughs> That's a superpower. <laughs> yes, yeah, he just like oozes through gaps in the fence. I'm like, how did you get out here? <laughs> <laughs> now, when you started out the process, and you just had two poles, eighteen inches apart. And Echo just has to go straight through the poles. Did you use a cue from the beginning or did you add the cue after she, how did that look? I added the cue later. Now, I I do not know in agility if people have a certain voice cue that they use. I just figured to say weave, you know, that that made Mm -hmm. sense to me. Um, so usually when you're training something like this, you are going to get the behavior first. So you might, I used like the ball to lure her through, you mm-hmm. know, you could either throw the ball through or just kind of, you know, hold it in your hand and get the dog to go through. And then I, uh, rewarded her with the ball when she made it through. But then once they kind of get it like, oh, I meant to go through the poles, you can start adding the cue as they're going. So I just use the word weave. Um, and she seems to get that pretty well. Cool. And so my next question is prerequisites, things that she had to know before you could start the process of going through the first set of poles. So, for example, she knows how to sit and stay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she knows she come to you. Basic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you wouldn't so be able to just take a dog who has zero down. training and expect to have success. <laughs> I think you could start, and again, I say this, my caveat is I am not an expert. I'm a baby beginner. This is just based on my experience with one dog and not for competition agility. But um, I think you could start the process, you know, if you have your dog, if you, you know, 
Echo, her recall isn't always great, but when I have that ball, she's like, I will do whatever you want. I'll never leave you ever. So, um, you know, she knew to stick with me. And if you've got like a toy or, you know, favorite treat that keeps them engaged and wanting to play, you know, you could probably start luring them through things like the, the weave pulls and stuff without having to have too, too much, um, of the, you know, like obedient stuff. Uh, but yeah, so for, for what I'm doing with her, it's really nice to have, uh, a sit and a stay and, uh, you know, be able to call her back to me reasonably well. Uh, we seem to be getting along pretty good. Now I'm sure if I was like tomorrow gonna, okay, I'm signing up for an agility competition and I were to work with a professional, they would probably tell me about like 37 other things I need to have going for me, but for just fun, you know, so that begs the question. And I, I experienced this a lot whenever I was teaching horseback riding and training for a living. Oftentimes, when you set out on a completely new path, like you have training Echo to do obstacles, it gives you a different perspective on something that you are very competent at because all learning contains four levels. It's unconscious incompetent you so you know so little you don't even realize how much you don't know and then you go to conscious incompetence you are aware of how much you don't know and are able to ask pertinent questions and then you move to conscious competence you're good at it as long as you think hard about it and then you go to unconscious competence where you're just in the zone and you get it done and you really are not conscious of how you got it done so going through this process with Echo, did that make you look at aspects of horse training differently? Because you really have to take a, a huge step back. Yes, this has been very humbling for me. Um, you know, I I have people say all the time, oh, you'd be a great dog trainer because you train horses and it's the same. And that might be the experience for some people. And yes, a lot of things are very similar. A lot of the constructs of how to train a behavior are very similar, but it's really not the same, not all the way. You know, you're training a prey animal versus a predator, a thousand pound animal versus a 60 pound animal, um, you know, an animal that doesn't communicate uh you know, naturally with us versus an animal that like looks at our facial expressions and knows exactly what's going on in our brain. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been really like eye opening, um, because I get to be back in the student position of, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, or this issue has come up and I have no idea what to do about it. Whereas with horses, I would definitely not say, you know, I know everything, but you give me any horse problem, I have an idea of where I'm going to go to try to try to fix it. And with some of the things that I've had raising Echo, who's this very like exuberant, extremely intelligent, very sensitive animal, I have hit a few walls where I had to ask several people, um, what do I do? And, you know, then realizing oh, I've made this mistake that I should have had fixed two years ago. And is it, you know, I've gone through the existential crisis of, oh my God, am I a bad dog mom? Have I completely <laughs> messed up my dog? And I have had this conversation on the other end with horse people who are like, I've just messed up my horse and he doesn't deserve me. And I have to be like, no, 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 you know, talk him down from the ledge. 
you're fine. This is all normal. And so now me going through it with, you know, on the other side again, uh, you know, being a student again, it's really made me appreciate what a lot of horse owners go through, especially if you don't have a trainer in your back pocket or your horse isn't in training with someone, or you can't go to a clinic every weekend. And you're like, what I'm doing, you're on YouTube frantically trying to figure out what the heck do I do? Um, so yeah, definitely, uh, being a student again has really broadened my appreciation for what horse owners and dog owners go through. And, um, yeah, it's been a good brain exercise for me for sure. See, so stepping outside your comfort zone, sometimes when you have a training problem, like we're going to talk about shortly, uh, Stepping aside and doing something completely different, either with a horse or even with a different species, can give you very useful insight into the current problem. And I've I've noticed that over and over and over again. And it's not because I sought it out specifically. It happened coincidentally because I get to talk to such an enormous variety of people who are training creatures. Uh, because of my job as a podcaster. And I, I get input from so many different places. And so many times I have these little light bulb moments that tell me, oh, I could apply that to something personally. So don't be afraid to step well outside your zone of interest or your zone of expertise. You never know where insight is going to show itself. It just comes from strange places sometimes. Yes, it's it's been incredibly enlightening. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely something to to get my brain going. And you know, I'm feeling more confident now. And and uh, but yeah, one thing that Echo dealt with that is not a problem I've really had too much with the horse is uh, reactivity to strangers, which is not uncommon for Malinois. Um, and I've had to go through. Uh, like two different professional trainers and consulted with her breeders. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I can definitely appreciate for horse owners is how you can get paralyzed because you don't know what to do, or you've been given conflicting information. So like echo, uh, even though I socialized her, she had all her regular vet puppy visits. Um, she's always been very like, you're a different person and I don't want to be touched and you need to stay away from me. And, um, you know, I, uh, trying to quote unquote, fix the the issue. She's never just going to be like, loves everyone kind of dog. And I don't demand that she be, but I need to be able to safely get her vet care. I need to make sure she's not going to react in a bad way if someone unexpectedly pets her. Um, and so this has been really puzzling for me. Um, but uh, it made me, uh, it made me realize how when you get different, you know, I've read all, I've read books on it. I've consulted with trainers. There are people who are like in the purely positive side of things who will say, oh no, you can't ever correct them for, for doing that, for barking because they're scared and you're just going to make them worse and they're going to learn to hide it. And then they won't bark. And then maybe they start biting. And, um, and so, you know, hearing this information and then on the other side of things, you have people say, no, you must correct it. They can, they need to know they cannot do that. And, but, you know, then if you if but then you have other people who say, well, if you do that, you you know, like I said, you're going to make it worse. And so anytime Echo would do something that I didn't want, like barking at a stranger, 
uh, or the the last vet visit I took before her vet appointment yesterday, she was horrible. She hated the vet. She was barking. We didn't get to get anything done. They sent me home with uh, sedatives Aww. and then we rescheduled. Yeah. I, and, <laughs> and I went through what I know every horse trainer, including myself, has gone through where you cry in the car and realize you're a bad parent and you messed up yeah. everything. And we've all been there with your life. Yes. Yeah. We've, we've all been there. Sick question our life choices and felt the guilt like I've done wrong by my animal. Um, so I totally understand. I, I've been through that as a horse owner. Of course I have, but you know, I don't have those experiences very much anymore. I always know a little bit of where I'm going to go with an issue with echo. I did not. Um, and you just have to give yourself a little grace for give yourself for any mistakes you may have made and just keep trying. And now, you know, I've consulted with the breeders and they were so nice. They came, you know, and we went through uh, three different stores in town that are dog friendly. And he showed me, you know, this is, this is what she should do. And um, you know, it finally gave me some footing to, okay, there's, there's a way through this. And I took her to the vet yesterday and she was perfect. Very interesting that you found really applicable help from the breeder. And I'm just going to toss this in here, folks. This is where getting your puppy from a reputable breeder who is proactive when it comes to their puppy's well-being when it moves on to its permanent home, where you they say right up front, if you have issues, you come to us. We will help you for that that dog's entire life. That's where that comes in. And and good on you for, because Malinois, for people who do any research, are not an appropriate dog for a first-time dog owner. And for someone like you who's had dogs for years and years and years and years of all sorts, recognizing that and going with a breeder who says, yep, we're here for you. We're here to support you was the smartest move you could have made. Now, unfortunately, for most the most part, when it comes to horses, we don't have that option. You get your horse from wherever, the breeder, the seller is not the place that you're going to be able to go to get that kind of support. Uh, so that was really cool. And that you've gotten those tools now. You can take those same tools and apply them globally to Echo's life, really. Yes, I was very, very fortunate to have that kind of support. And yeah, you know, with the horse industry, it's different. And not to say that most sellers and breeders just don't want to be there for their animals and make sure they're okay, but just the nature of it, you know, oftentimes uh, we might get a horse that's been through five or six or seven different people since it was sold or bred or uh, in my case, right. uh, you know, I've got one that came from the desert. So <laughs> there is <Right>. no, uh, <laughs> there's no, I can't call the BLM be like, oh, my Mustang is wild. Did you guys know that? <laughs> you can, can you call mother nature on the phone and say, excuse me? <laughs> yeah, I would like him not to be wild. So how do we go about fixing this? <laughs> about doing this. Oh my gosh. And speaking of fixing things. One of the things we need to fix this time of year as we record this show, it's springtime and almost summer in many places, flies, biting flies, flies of every sort. And Spalding Labs has something called Fly Predators, and they help to support this show. Let's hear a little bit about them. 
especially with performance horses, flies can really be a nuisance. Fly predators are a great investment of all the different poisons and insecticides and different things you could use. I don't know of anything that is more economical and more effective than Spalding fly predators. And now it's time to do our first listener Q&A. And as I said, Mary posts over on the auditor's Facebook page whenever we do a show, who's got questions? And we just take a random sampling of them. It just so happened that cantering was really high on the list of things that people were, were curious about this time around. So what have you got for us, Mary? Yeah, I love how the questions always seem to have a theme. It's never coordinated that way, um, but it makes my job easier because I can I can hopefully <laughs> you can, answer you can group a blanket them. of questions. Yeah. yeah, you can group them together. Um, so yeah, I did have for a question, first question, it's kind of two questions. Uh, I had one from Jessica and one from Melissa, both very similar problems with the uh, horses being anxious in the canner. Um, I will read Melissa's question. Um this may be ways too specific, but my current problem, uh, this is my current problem. I have an off the track thoroughbred who loves to run. How do I get her to relax after cantering under saddle? Once I canter her for the first time, she gets very forward, sticks her nose in the air like a racehorse and anticipates uh, when she can canter again. She doesn't do any of these things when lunged, which is very interesting. Um, and Jessica's is very similar. She's got a horse, very anxious, trots beautifully. But as soon as she thinks you're going to start, uh, for a lope starts to rush and she's tried all sorts of things like doing patterns and transitions and repetition. It makes the horse more anxious. Um, once on her, in her horse's case, once the horse is already loping, she relaxes. So it's just the transition that is her issue. Um, so I've dealt with this a lot over the years. And it's not uncommon um, for horses to, you know, find anxiety when it comes to transitions. So there's kind of two different paths you can take. There's lots of different methods, but I find they, they I tend to find uh, that they fall under two categories of ways to solve. And so in some cases with a horse that has anxiety about the canner or they get really excited, want to rush, all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes doing lots of cantering for long periods of time is the answer. Um, and they just, you know, the more they canter around and canter around and canter around, they realize, well, we're not really going anywhere. And it looks like we might be cantering for a long time. So maybe I won't do it at Mach 20. And I'm going to conserve my energy a little bit and canter slowly and relaxed. Uh, the kinds of horses that this tends to work with are the horses that are actually a little bit more on the lazy side. They would rather, uh, you know, conserve energy and not go very fast. And for whatever reason, they've decided to, to kind of rush through the canner. And so this, like my horse, Remy, uh, this is the kind of work I do with him because he gets into the canner, he gets really excited and he goes really forward. But Remy naturally isn't a very like, hot and I could run a thousand miles an hour for three hours and not get tired type of horse. So for him doing just let's lope or if you want to lope for 20 minutes, let's do it. And I'm just very relaxed about it. I don't just let him have his head and run off without thinking. I do put him to work. So he's, uh, I'm working on reining with him. So I put him on a big circle, my reining, you know, uh, kind of pattern circles. And I do make him uh, you know, listen and collect 
um, and stay on task, but we're going to stay in the canner. And if he goes fast, I'll just go with him. You know, as long as he's not just flat running off out of control, we're just going to keep cantering. And for Remy, um, you canter around five minutes and he's like, you know what? I'd, I'd like to stop now. I don't, I don't canter. He's not fed anymore. And I'm like, just a little bit longer. And so he'll go around and then he's like, no, 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 really. I could slow down. I don't really want to keep cantering. And I'm like, eh, just a little longer. And after a while, horses like that kind of figure out, oh, this is my job. And it's not as uh, as novel and exciting as I thought. And I'm, I think I'm just going to be chill about it and calm down. Um, but that doesn't work with every horse. On your horses, like I suspect Melissa's horse is off the track thoroughbred who can probably just go and go and go and go and go with those horses. Uh, they don't really feel motivated to slow down after long periods of cantering. In fact, it might actually rev them up even more. So kind of like my dog echo, they can get physically tired, but mentally they're still just going a million miles a minute. So with those horses, you need to try changing it up. And those are horses. I do a lot more transitions with, um, a horse that gets nervous about the canter transition, like, um, like Jessica's horse, um, uh, I canter, I usually do trot to canter transitions and I'm very lax about that lead departure. They do not have to pick it up right away. They don't have to be perfectly collected with their hip, you know, to the inside. I don't, I don't really, um, uh, push too hard with that. I just make sure they're nice and straight. I make sure they pick up the correct lead and let them take their time. If you want to take three or four or six trot strides to get to the canter, that's okay. Take your time. And I'll let them canter a couple of strides and then just bring them right back to trot. And then I'll long trot around for a while. And I like to do this in a big open area. You know, as long as I have decent control of my horse and I know I can shut them down, um, you know, I, I like to give them the room to go and I just go trot, canter, 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 trot, 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 trot. And I just barely tip them over to that canter. As soon as they find the canter, I bring them right down and I'll, I'll do that forever. I might do that for a few weeks and I only let them canter a stride or two and then just bring them back down. Um, and eventually, and it might take a while, depending on how severe the problem is, the horse gets so used to you bringing them down from that canter that they go, oh, we're not going to canter for very long. And so they start listening to you once you hit that canter. You can feel them dial back to you and go, well, I know we're going to trot in a few seconds. So I'm not going to just burst forward in the canter. And it's let, me, very let me ask you a quick question here, because I think yes. this is an, an important element of this process, because I've, I've got a vision in my head of, how, of this happening. You go from trot to canter or trot to lope and the horse's frame his balance is long and relaxed yes mm-hmm. yeah and then when you go from the canter or lope back to the trot again the horse's frame remains long and relaxed and i think that's key because in my experience many horses who struggle with this process the struggle originates in their discomfort of in holding that frame. And if you allow and actually encourage the horse's frame to be long and low, he's not engaging his hindquarters. He's not lifting lifting his shoulders and carrying himself in a frame. It's much more of a natural frame so that the horse doesn't cause himself a lot of physical and mental anxiety anticipating 
carrying themselves in that frame. Bingo. Yes. And this is an issue where I actually experienced a ton of my horses having this problem many years ago. And then as always, I realized, wow, all my horses seem to be really hot in the loo departures and really hot in general. <laughs> and I had to do a little math and go, what is the common denominator? All of my horses have me as a rider. So maybe, just maybe, it's something I'm doing. And the issue that I was experiencing was I was demanding an advanced lead departure. And I'm talking on the bit, from the walk, perfectly collected, um, hip engaged. And I wanted them when we hit the, you know, X, you can't right now. And that is a very powerful. And it, it, to me, it's a very advanced maneuver and it's difficult physically for a horse to do. You, you want them to kind of like really compress and engage and use that hind end and strike off into that canter right away. And they have to stay on the bit the whole time. They can't, they can't get above the bridle. And we're, you know, sometimes we're really holding on their face when we do this. So you're like holding on their face and using a ton of leg and they don't know where to go all the time with all that energy. So when they finally push in that caner, they feel like it's like a slingshot. They feel like exploding. Um, eventually, you know, the finished product for me is like when I go into my little ranch horse pattern and I hit cone a, where you're supposed to hit that caner, that horse should go right from a collected walk, bam. In one stride, strike off in a can or stay collected the whole time. But it's a process to get there. And um, a lot of horses need a little bit more physical physical conditioning. And they need a little bit of grace. And, you know, like with horses like this, if you want to trot a little bit before you get into that canter, that's fine. Because we know with these horses, having the energy and responsiveness is not the issue. They will react, you know, sensitively to things. And I don't need to worry about them doing it right now. So, you know, just go on a nice long trot. They don't have to be completely on a loose rein, but I'm not trying to like, ugh, you know, really drive them into that bridle and collect them up. Um, I just want them to listen to me and, you know, listen to my hands. And, and the hands are also very important here because you're using your hands to tell the horse, you've done it, you made it, you know, this is exactly where I want you. So as I may soften my horse a little bit going into the canner. But as soon as they find the canner, I want to be giving with my hands like, this is what I wanted. You made it. If I keep hanging on to them into that canner, they don't feel like they have any escape from that pressure and they can just try to take the bit and go harder and harder. So you want to be soft with your hands and give when they go into the canner. And then when you go back into the trot, you may have to half hold or pick up on them and soften them to get back down into that trot. As soon as they find the trot, you need to give back to them. And this can be really hard if you have a hot horse. So you go to that back to that trot or even walk transition. Uh, if your horse has a habit of rushing and being really hot, we tend to go, I know you're going to try and canter again. So we hang on to them to try to make them stop. No, give them the reins, you know, give them their face and say, you did it. You came back to trot. I'm so proud of you. If they jump forward in a canter again, you just gently say, no, no, no. Come back to trot. Exactly. Back to them again. Allow yes. them to do it. Exactly. Yes. Don't say, no, you can't. No, it's okay. You can a couple more strides. Yes. Come back to our trot. Okay. And sometimes you let them be that long frame. At first, that's yeah. going to be a struggle for them mentally because they're going to anticipate that. But if you're, if you are doing the right things as the rider, if your balance is correct, 
if your aids are correct and that you're not asking for too much inadvertently, if you're not holding on too much inadvertently, obviously you're not doing it on purpose, but maybe what you feel like is I'm not holding on to my horse too much with my hand. I'm not bracing too much. Well, the horse still might be perceiving as too much bracing. You might have to give even more with your hand. If you're getting those things right, over time, the horse will get better. So let's see, you've tried this technique three, four, five times and really not seeing a big difference. Try more. Try giving more with your hand. Try sitting up more with your body. Try allowing your leg aids to be softer even than you think they should be and give the horse that opportunity to give you the reaction because so many times in these situations with horses who have a lot of forward drive anyway, their go-to is forward. What you think is a light aid is way more than they need. It's amazing how given the opportunity an aid that seems like nothing gets so much reaction, especially when it's the removal of an aid. Exactly, exactly. And this, this is a situation where oftentimes when I'm coaching a rider who has a horse like this, um, and I've been through this myself, especially if you know your horse has an issue, you know they're going to be fast and energetic, we can tend to look very quiet when we're riding around, but really there's like a lot of electricity in our body because yes. we're anticipating, oh, he's going to go really fast. And it's it's like your seat is electric and you're yes. shocking the horse every stride. And they're like, faster, faster, faster. And you have to, you know, I, I've told people like, relax. And they're like, I am relaxed. I'm like, no, you're not. You're riding quiet. Like your equitation looks good. But I can tell, I can just feel the energy coming off of your seat. And I see a lot of riders tend to ride forward on their seat uh, it, with a horse like this. You need to, and this is this is kind of my Western um, side of me. Uh, I like, I have the worst equitation when I'm doing this. I'm like back on my jeans pockets. My core is like super collapsed and I'm almost riding like a, like a sack of feed. Like I'm just kind of dead weight. I'm still with the horse. I'm not like hitting them, you know, with my seat as they're going around. I'm still balanced and in the middle, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in one speed with my body. Like I'm kind of riding, like we're going on a trail ride. And if that horse's energy picks up, I stay behind. I'm like, where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. You know, come back to me. And that is very hard to train yourself to do. And you need to breathe. You kind of need to act like, you know, your horse is that manic extroverted friend who's like, we need to do this and let's go do this and let's go do this. And you're the person who has to constantly say, hey, no, no, wait a minute. Let's, let's just chill out for a second. Let's take our time. You you have to really emit that aura of, I don't have anywhere to be. You know, it's okay. And if it's not working after two or three or four times, these with horses with this kind of issue, I would say keep going because sometimes I've been at this 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 times. Um, you know, it might take a month, might take six months, might be an always maintenance thing with this horse. But I'm always slow and gentle. And the other thing I want to say is with your hands, back to the hands, you want to think slow to pick up, quick to release. Anytime I draw on that bridle, 
to, to ask my horse something to collect, to come back to me. I'm very slow and fluid with my hands. And as soon as they listen, then I'm quick to give that rein back to them and say, that's where I want you. And, um, yeah, there's all sorts of exercises and transitions that you can do with this, but sometimes it's not working because our energy is still really high. So you have to just take your time. We actually did a lot of this exact same thing in a ranch horse clinic. I was at, at the show I was at this last weekend. Um, you know, the horses, uh, the classes, the horses go around the rail and they do different maneuvers on the rail. And the person who was teaching the clinic said, I know that this, there's actually signs you have to follow you. It's actually a pretty cool class. You ride around and it'll say trot, extended trot, lope, extended lope. And so this pattern had a really long extended lope. And the, the clinician said, um, I know tomorrow you're going to be showing at that extended lope. Don't do it here. Our horses are fresh. They This is a scary arena. You're going to slow lope. And she actually had us go around and do, go canter walk, canter walk, canter walk, like several times around the arena, canter walk, canter walk, canter walk. And even Remy, uh, he was pretty fresh doing it. And he was like, canter. And then it took him a little while to come back to the walk. And then those first several walk transitions, he was like, we're going to canter again. And I was just like, yeah, we are, but maybe not right now, you know? And then I'd go a couple of more feet down the rail. I said, now canter. And after three or four or five or six laps around, he was like, oh, okay, this isn't that big deal. And he started really listening to me. And so just lots of repetition and again, focus on staying relaxed. It sounds simple, but it can be kind of difficult to accomplish. I think you have to be really committed to the fo focusing on, you have to be emotionally committed to the fact that we're going to canter. It might be a little weird, might be a little zippy, and then we're going to come back to a walk. Might be a little jiggy. We're going to take our time. We're not going to canter till we're ready. Oh, we're not ready yet. Yeah. And I think if you can get the emotional commitment, the horse recognizes that. And like you said, six or seven times around that giant arena. Oh, yeah. Okay. You were committed to this. We're okay. Speaking of committed, got another sponsor today. Look at us. Even under the best circumstances, travel is stressful for horses. We've all been there stuck on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. You can make the journey knowing that U.S. Rider is there for you. Get peace of mind on the road with U.S. Rider's nationwide 24-7 roadside assistance coverage for both you and your horse. Join today at usrider.org. And now that we got things covered for travel, because we all travel with our horses upon occasion, we're going to do another listener question. Who's this one from? Uh, I was just looking that up because I didn't have it in their notes. It is from Margaret. And she says that her Morgan gelding has a tough time at the canner. Another canner oh, one. Canner ones. But this one's, this one's slightly different. He tends to cross canner, um, constantly changing leads. What can we do to help him stay on track? So if you're not familiar with what cross cantering is, or I call it cross firing or disunited canner, it means, usually it means the horse is in one lead with his front pair of legs and his back legs are in a completely different lead. And it feels really weird um, and can be kind of a, a annoying problem to solve. Um, and so I did ask a few questions beforehand in the Facebook post um, about uh, the horse's breed and background. 
so he's a 20-year-old Morgan Gelding, and they do suspect he is gated because she did post a, a great video uh, to kind of help me see what was going on. And the way the horse was cantering, I was like, is he gated? Uh, because I have dealt with this before with actually a mule that I was very gated and I did not know he was gated because I'd never ridden a gated anything before. And he had a very specific problem of not being able to pick up his left lead, just re outright refused to do it. And it wasn't until a while of trying to solve this problem that I, it was brought to my attention he was gated, which can cause uh, some gated horses have just a beautiful natural canter and every gated horse can canter. But for some, it can be sort of difficult for them to be collected or be in the correct lead or be, uh, you know, not have the cross firing going on. And so I would say with this, I'm going yes. to throw something in right here. There's an actual genetic code for horses who have a propensity to gate. <gasps> Interesting. Yes. Uh, when one of the interviews we did with one of the genetics companies, it might have been Edelon, might have been somebody else, but they can do a genetic test a dna test to see a there's a gene that make gives them a propensity it doesn't make them gated but it will give them propensity so don't think that it's just quote i'm gonna use my air quotes gated breeds who can find cantering and changing leads difficult it it's across the board it's a gene that's there so um just because your Morgan is not, quote, a gated Morgan. A gated breed, yeah. A gated breed or your quarter horse or your thoroughbred, that's in there. So I, if, if I remember right, this horse owner has had the horse looked at. He's got good veterinary care. They've done their best to eliminate physical issues that are giving this horse trouble. So that's been covered because that's always the first place you go when a horse struggles with carrying a lead for any period of time you want to make sure that there's nothing going on physically so continue from there because i'm very curious to the next step yeah yeah you brought up a really good point uh typically most horses want to have a united canner it's it's more comfortable oftentimes for them and if a horse is just adamantly refusing to either be in the correct lead or have that united canner uh, that is one of the things that I look for. I will start to do some detective work like, well, are his stifles okay? Are his hocks okay? Um, so like you said, this, they have covered all the bases. He's had body work done. There doesn't seem to be any kind of physical ailment. I would, my guess, just from looking at the video and getting a few questions answered, it'd be the, that his gatedness uh, probably has a lot to do with it. Um, he is an older horse. Uh, you know, they are working on conditioning his top line. So what I would say um, is uh, I would um, look into conditioning exercises, working on your long trot and um, working on getting good hip control uh, at the, your lower gates, at the standstill, at the walk. Um, you know, you can do, there's an exercise that I really love to do for lead departures and lead changes. Um, but Brandeman is really big on it. He calls it the teardrop exercise. And I love this exercise because it covers so many things. You can do it at the walk. Um, so I like to do things like I will collect my horse up and start a half circle. Like I'm going to reverse direction on the rail and I want him to be really soft and have a nice bend on that circle. I want him to be on the bit walking forward. Um, and, you know, just have that really nice bend. Now, as we go back to the rail, 
I'm going to start to change the bend. I'm going to tip his nose the other way and I will begin a leg yield to the rail. Um, and then I'll walk the other direction and I'll do that. So the horse is really good at it. And then I'll start adding the hips to that scenario. So when I start this exercise, I will soften them up, do that little half circle, get a nice bend on that circle. As we come back to the rail, I'm going to change the bend leg yield. And as I start to meet that rail, the, so the horse is already leading with his shoulder. I'm going to now add my outside leg and push that hip. And so I will do a little haunches in movement as I get to the rail and then walk on again. And you can do this walk, trot and canter. Um, and so you can start doing it to where you walk, do a little bend, go back to the rail, make that little teardrop shape. And then as you engage the hips, once you meet that rail, you can strike off in the canner. Uh, so things like that, you know, just a lot of lateral and softening and, you know, doing pole work, getting that horse conditioned and having a stronger top line and hindquarters are going to really be helpful. Um, again, with this horse, I might try trot to canner transitions. Again, for me, an upward transition, an upward collected transition from walk to canner, I feel like it's pretty advanced. And it takes a lot of engagement for the horse to do that. So with horses that have different issues, whether it's the mental anxiety we saw with the other questions, or maybe he has trouble getting into a correct canter lead, like with this horse, I like to work from the trot for a long time before I start asking for it from the walk. Um, and again, soft with your hands. Um, and what I would do with this horse is I would get him into that lope. Let's say I can only get one correct stride with the lope. I'm going to lope him for a few strides. If he stays in the lead, I'm going to bring him right back down and reward him profusely. So Remy's favorite reward is to stand still. So I'm working on this with lead changes with him right now because he has an incredibly difficult time getting his hind, hind quarters together to do a lead change. So when he changes correctly, I let him go a few strides just to kind of, you know, like, you know, exaggerate. Oh, you're in the other lead now. That's great. And then I immediately break him back down, let him go all the way back down to a complete stop. And I'm going to sit there for a few minutes and I'm a pet on him. If I have a cookie on me, I'll give him a cookie. And I'm going to say, man, that was amazing. You did that. And okay, I'm going to stop here. Again, this, yes. I think I, I try to highlight these points that I think are oftentimes lost. Um, when you bring, when you successful chain lead chains left to right, canter a few strides, bring him back down. When you go from lead change, canter, canter, canter to halt, to take a break, this is not a sliding stop, correct, correct halt on the bit. You let him kind of drift back down into his walk so that the transition from the correct lead change to the correct canter to the walk is not physically demanding. It is not a continued exercise. It's just a way to get from the correction, the correct exercise to a place where he can take a break. And from my background, because I've always been an English writer, this was, this was something we never did in all caps. You never went from cantering to halt unless it was on the bit, absolutely correct, blah, 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 blah. But what that did it is it, it eliminated the ability to immediately reward 
that behavior because the horse had to perform six more behaviors that had the potential to go wrong before they got the reward. So if you've not done this before with your horse, do a little research and understand that process because it was an absolute game changer for Nigel. I'm going to in big, big, bold letters, the ability for me to give him a reward immediately for a behavior that he found difficult. And once I got the knack of doing that, he understood what the reward was for. Whereas before, canner, correct lead, canner, trot, walk, halt, all on the bit, all, all, the, all with the potential to be difficult to do and to go wrong. He didn't understand where what the reward was for. So that's key. And also, sitting for a few minutes and taking a break on the buckle or walking for a few minutes on the buckle, um, what I perceived as a few minutes was 45 seconds. It's not the same. I get my phone out on <laughs> Facebook because then I can get lost in the doom scrolling for like there you an go. hour if you and leave it, me alone. Yeah. <laughs> again, 45 seconds, not a reward. Three minutes, reward. So... There you go. Continue. (laughs) Yes, that is such a good point. And it's something I take for granted. I learned it working with the reining horses. And I forget that a lot of people do not utilize this, especially in the English world. And I actually, some, I, I talked to someone about it recently, who's a dressage rider. I said, you know, I, I realized that a lot of English riders don't like just let their horses soak during the ride. And she said, a lot of people feel that if you do that, it can cause, you know, if, you, if you're working like a high level competition horse, it can cause, they believe it'll cause lactic acid buildup. So they're always keeping their horses moving. I'm like, oh, that does make sense. Um, so I see why that, that, you know, is something that maybe doesn't occur as often, but I still think it's really important. And yes, on the, I don't, if I want to reward my horse by stopping, I'm not going to, especially on a reigning horse, um, that stop is sacred. When I say, whoa, that, ho- that means for a reining horse, you need to bury your butt in the ground right now. And if you don't, we've got to fix it. And so if I want to reward my horse, he just picked up his lead beautifully, or he just did a beautiful lead change. And I want to stop and I say, whoa, and he didn't listen in the stop or didn't stop as well as he should have. Well, now I got to fix that and I don't get to reward my horse. So I call it breaking a horse down or letting them trickle down. Um, I do this with my seat and my voice. So I actually have a word that I use with Remy. I say good. And I do it for like this really drawn out, good, deep voice. It kind of sounds like, whoa, but it's not. And I'm exhaling as I say the word. So it helps me relax. And my horse's um all of my horses stop off my seat and they do it from almost ride one. And this is why, because when they do something good, I stop riding. I relax. I say, good. I give that horse rein. I let him go from canter, 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 trot, 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 walk, 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 stop. And some horses, you actually have to eventually use your reins and say, hey, come on back to a stop because like maybe the off the track thoroughbred from above wouldn't find a lot of reward inherently in standing still. But you do this often enough, they will crave it. They'll be like, oh my God, thank goodness. I'm so happy. And you put them down to the buckle and they just go on screensaver mode and just breathe and catch their air. 
this is so with the horses above, I think this would be a very important thing to add, you know, let them take a break. And so with this Morgan that's cross-firing, cross-firing tends to be a little bit more natural for this Morgan just because of how he is physically. And so you have to let him know you did good. And so I want to try not to practice the crossfire if I can help it. So if I can get a couple strides in the caner, I'm going to say, that's it. That's all I wanted. Just a few strides in that caner. And I'm going to reward him profusely. Let's sit here for a second. If it's the beginning of the ride and the horse is feeling a little rambunctious, I may only sit for 45 seconds to start with and just say, okay, take a little breather. Great. And go again. They will start wanting you to sit there with them longer and longer as you go. So I would practice um, go trot to canter. Do not be a stickler for having them on the bit. Um, you want a little bit of hip engagement because, you know, having control of those hips is going to be really important for him to keep that hind end in the canter. Um, and then if he gives you a couple strides without breaking, you stop him before he has a chance to make the mistake. There you go. Stop ding, 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 ding. Per and then, yeah. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice make makes perfect. So three strides correct four different times in a ride is going to get you way further down the road to a good canner than 16 strides all at one time, three of which were correct. Yes. And, yeah. um, and if he does make the mistake of crossfiring, I'm real gentle with him. I'm like, oh, no, that wasn't quite right. I bring him back down to a walk or trot, set him up again, do it again until we get it right. As soon as they do it right, I go, good. And then just let him have that break, give them the reins, you know, scratch them on their favorite scratchy spot on their neck. Um, and the, you, you can start building this over time to where they will start to get the idea. Oh, this is the kind of canner that's going to get the reward. Um, and doing that trot to canner, tr canner trot transition is going to help build up, you know, build up those muscles and give them the conditioning to do it. And hopefully that helps give, uh, you get a little progress with your horse. That's fantastic. And one other thing I'm going to toss in here intermittently having had a horse that just really struggles with the whole canter thing you get three strides you take a break lovely great yay good job good job good job you do it a second time yay good job good job good job but you've only been riding for 19 and a half minutes you have lots of other things to do set that aside and go and do things that the horse is really really good at things that he loves to do maybe that's lateral work at the walk maybe that's ground poles at the trot but once you get those one or two or three little sets of canter steps, whether it's one stride or three strides, once you get those, go and find things that the horse loves to do and is really good at so you can build on success, build on good behaviors, or alternately, just be done for the day. There's no rule that says you need to ride for an hour. Exactly. Um, a friend of mine, we were working for the same reigning trainer and she uh, got on her horse and warmed him up and, um, you know, loped the horse around a little bit and asked for a stop. And this horse just did the most beautiful, phenomenal stop that the horse had ever done. And her boss said, okay, get off. She's <laughs> like, but I just got on. And he goes, is it going to get any better than what he just did for you? No, get off, loosen the girth, put him away. Like you could have spent two hours trying to get that and never get it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you don't have to have that happen every ride, but like, say you come out and your horse is just on fire and hits it every time you ask, Oh, we're done for the day. 
Like, there you go. let's, you know, let's go back to the barn and have fun with your friends because it's not going to get better than what just happened. And there you go. you're going to build that currency you let that, you know, uh, you're going to build that rapport with your horse and they're going to realize, oh, if I put more effort into it, I get paid for it. Uh, and speaking of getting effort and paid, Horse and Rider Magazine, great way to get great information about all things horses. And we're going to hear a little bit from them. And when we come back, our final listener question. Horse and Rider On Demand allows you to train smarter, not harder. Our training video collection featuring some of the industry's top Western professionals like Bud Lyon, Cody Crow, Ryan Rushing, and more can help you perfect your horsemanship and improve your performance in the arena. Get access to hundreds of videos and learn more about events like ranch horse versatility, reining, working cow horse, ranch riding, and more for just $14.99 a month. Watch anywhere, anytime. Horse and Rider On Demand can be streamed from any smart device. Visit ondemand.horseandrider.com to start your seven-day free trial. That's ondemand.horseandrider.com. And now our final listener question for the day. Listeners, me. (laughs) I posted this on the auditor's Facebook page on purpose because I knew it would get some reactions. Uh, What do you do with a leanling who just plows through the lead rope? And no, I don't have another horse in my life, but there is a weanling at the barn who has a real propensity when she gets excited about something or something startles her from behind or she wants to get to something that's in front of her, she just treats you like you're a pull toy and drags you along. <laughs> just really, there's a human at the end of that lead rope? What do you oh, do with that? <laughs> that is a good question. And it can be so tough to solve. And if they've practiced it more than a few times, uh, you're you're in for a little bit of a challenge. Luckily, it's a wheeling. So hopefully it's not too big and giant a horse. Yeah, um, she, she weighs around 800 pounds. She's pretty good size. Just yeah. enough to be, a, to be a pain in the butt. Yes. yes. <laughs> So, so I'm guessing that you're the, who the owner's leading the horse around and the horse just clocks out and says, nope, and pulls through the halter. Has it ever run off and pulled the rope out of their hands? Not that I'm aware of. I don't think she's caught quite, she's by nature. She's a very sweet little filly, but Mm -hmm. she's, she's an alpha filly. Mm -hmm. Her mom is an alpha mare. And when she decides things need to go her way, they just do. <laughs> yes, I can see that. I think they go through that stage where they're very confident. Um, so I would say the key to this horse is one, going to be get excellent control of that horse's hindquarters. And two, showing them that being with you and giving their attention to you is the best answer in any situation. Um, because, you know, even though it's a weanling, she's 800 pounds and even a tiny, tiny little weanling, they can still out, they can overpower us. And so pulling on their face is, is you're like playing, it's you're playing tug of war with something that weighs 800 pounds. You're not going to win. Um, and the more you pull on them, the more they pull back. And then pretty soon they just get stronger and stronger and stronger. And they realize that you are quite small and they can do whatever they want. Um, so it just doesn't work to try to control them all from their head. 
so you've got to go to those hindquarters. And this is something I would work on in a controlled, quiet environment, uh, you know, like a round pen or an arena where, you know, things are pretty quiet. And uh, to put it simply, I am going to tip that horse's nose toward me and then I'm going to get them to swing their hindquarters away. So I may use a flag to do that. I may use a lead rope. Sometimes it just takes body language for me to be able to do that. Tipping their nose is almost like the cue uh, for it. It's going to give me a little control, but really the control that's going to get that horse soft on that halter is me being able to get those hindquarters to swing away from me. Um and then releasing as soon as the horse faces me. I would work that on both sides and get that very good to where you just need to suggest they move their hind in away and they do. Um, so that is where I would start with that horse. I have a quick uh, question. And then, yes. When doing this, is there a best time and place or worst time and place to work on these things, at least initially? Um, yeah, uh, you, like I said, you definitely want to have a pretty controlled environment. You don't want to have to try to be working on this, like in the middle of the parking lot and you're trying to load your horse on the trailer for a show. I have done that before. I can definitely make that work. Uh, you know, sometimes life happens and that's just the situation you're dealing with. Um, I have, uh, probably the most crazy situation I had that happen was when I was starting a cult in Mexico and unbeknownst to me, the locals decided, well, we're going to get this gringo something really challenging. And they brought me like a 10-year-old, almost unhandled horse. Um, they brought it in on this uh, like polyurethane rope, kind of like a something you'd use for a boat or something. Uh, and before they could get it to the round pin, it broke free. And this rope was like 30 feet long. It broke ah. free and was running in the mountains of Mexico. So I had to catch that horse and I had to very sternly say that won't be happening again. Um, so, you know, it, like I said, it happens and I've done this on the fly. Uh, but when, you know, you have the convenience of it being your horse and you have time, do this in a quiet area. You're teaching a new concept. And then you can put it to use in more uh, different environments as the horse learns. So, yeah, something quiet. Uh, if the horse is really, really bad, like I've had some horses who just flat learn to pull the rope out of their owner's hands and run off. I'm going to go to the round pin and I'm going to have a long enough lead rope to even if that horse is going 400 million miles an hour trying to get away from me, I've still got my hand on the rope. So you haven't technically run away from me yet. Um, you never want to get in the situation and this horse is headed down that path. If something isn't done, you never want that horse to pull that rope out of your hands. It happens. It's fixable, but it becomes a huge challenge when it does. So you never want them to think they can do that because you could end up with a horse that gets very hurt or a person that gets very hurt. They never need to know that that is a possibility. They always need to look at you for help if they are fresh or scared or whatever. So yeah, quiet, nice, quiet environment. There we go. Would it be useful in a situation like this? And it's, this applies to any remedial horse that has be, that just pulling the lead rope and leaving has become a habit because you hear a lot about horses who pull back on the lead rope. They're facing you and they go backwards. But in my experience, 
horses who do the reverse. They pull the lead rope by going past you and leaving you behind. I have been injured physically by this several times. The only thing I've ever gotten from a horse who runs backwards with a lead rope is a rope burn in my hand. Hello, to let go. But the ones that leave and just keep going and the lead rope is in your hand, that has caused me some injuries. So when you have a horse that wants to do that when they're startled, will teaching them using positive reinforcement liberty techniques where they learn to stay next to you, not because they felt pressure and were inclined to um, give to that pressure. In other words, they feel pressure on a lead rope. They're going to give to it by stopping their nose and, and giving their haunches. Will using techniques where they stay next to you because they've been taught that through the use of positive reinforcement, can that also be of use? Should you not mix the two? I think it's a great way to come at it. And I have worked on sort of both ends of this issue using both the positive reinforcement and using the pressure release, the negative reinforcement. Um, there's a great, great exercise. Um, one of my favorite positive reinforcement trainers is a lady named Alexandra Curlin, and she's just come out with a new book, which is, I love the way this book reads. It's so good. Um, you can skip or it's designed for you to skip around, but one of the exercises that she does um, and it's something that I'm doing with a few of my Mustangs right now. It's built off of the, she calls it grownups are talking. So when you start clicker training a horse, you are going to run into the fact that they know you have food on you and they want to like knock you over and rifle through your pockets to get all the food. So you have to train them not to do that. Uh, so the grownups are talking exercise starts as a food manners exercise where you stand next to the horse and you reward them for being quiet, keeping their head nice and straight. So they're not trying to get in your pockets. So when they're standing quiet, relaxed, their head is straight, you reward them. And because you're training this as a new behavior, you reward them many, many times for this. So as an added bonus to getting the good food manners going, that horse is getting highly rewarded for being next to you and being quiet. So you can actually take this a step further and use it to teach leading. And you can use this with a horse that's never been led. You can do this at Liberty. I do it on the lead rope. Um, and again, small controlled area. You're going to work on this for a few minutes at a time, but you will start. So you've got your horse. You've already established a history of your horse knows that I should stand next to my person and be quiet and I keep my head straight and I'll be respectful and I will get all the cookies for this. So then you can add a step to it, literally add a step. So you can ask the horse to go forward one step. And then once the horse takes a step, you're going to go back to your neutral position. So I take an at ease stance kind of. Uh, so like, I will stand with my feet about shoulder width apart. I have a relaxed posture and I actually clasp my hands in front of me. I've got the lead rope in my hands and my hands are clasped in front of me. And this is going to become the cue. When I do this, the horse goes, oh yeah, that's when she does that. That means I stand quietly next to her. So you, by taking a step, you take us, I take one step. So I, I will like kind of push my hands forward to invite the horse to come forward with me. I take a step and then I go right back to that neutral position and that horse will go, Oh, this is where we stand next to each other. And then I reward him for that. And I'll do that over and over. Take a step back to neutral, 
step back to neutral, then two steps back to neutral over and over and over, then three steps, then four steps, then five steps, then 500 steps. And it is so great for either horse that wants to pull or horse that's just really anxious anyway and wants to run from point A to point B. This gets your horse really relaxed, really calm, work on this on both sides of the horse. Um, and they just have only good feelings associated with standing next to you and being quiet. Um, so you're making being with you the best thing in the whole world and way more interesting than anything that's going on in your outside environment. It's a great exercise. I can't, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's the author is Alexander Curlin. It's great insight, whether you train with clicker training or not. Speaking of best thing in the whole wide world for people who want to stalk you appropriately, have you come out to do a clinic? They want to attend one of your clinics, et cetera. Where do they find you? You can find me um, on Facebook, Mary Kitzmiller Horsemanship, or my even my personal page, Mary Kate Kitzmiller. And I do have a clinic coming up in June in Oregon. Um, let's see, it's a different place than we've had it before. I'm pulling up the event right now. It's in Canby, Oregon. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, I have shared a link to sign up on my Mary Kitts Miller Horsemanship page. It's a three-day clinic. It begins uh, Friday, June 23rd. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. We cover all sorts of issues. Uh, we work one-on-one. This will be my third time going out there. Uh, so, And we do have a few spots still open. And you can audit as well. Woohoo! And you can find links to today's show at horsesinthemorning.com. Remember, go share it. Go like and follow Mary on Facebook, Mary K. Kitzmiller or Mary Kitzmiller Horsemanship. And we will be back again tomorrow with more Horses in the Morning fun. Woohoo!